Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, author of The American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1970s and the 1990s, available through Tomorrows.com or through Amazon.com. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. So you may hear me sounding a little clearer now, a little uh, better than I did in previous podcasts, a little slicker, cleaner, more professional maybe. And um, I have a uh, good reason for that. Just bought some new equipment, decided to invest a little more into this cool little podcast thing that I've got going on now. Um, many thanks to my friend Carlos Rodella, who does the A Lot of Things podcast, which I recommend highly. It's a great podcast, super fun pop culture uh thing to uh, dig into. And um, that leads me to uh, the intro to our current episode. So uh, my guest on this episode is Tom Mason, who has an interesting and well-storied career in comics. Um, Tom started with uh, some of the first uh, indie comics publishers in the 1980s late 1980s, such as Eternity, Air Cell, and other companies, which grew into Malibu Comics, which then uh, was uh, the launching pad for Image Comics and eventually became the home of the Ultraverse. Tom's got a lot of really cool stories and interesting insights into working in comics during that era. And I think it makes this audio podcast a a thing well worth listening to. And yes, I'm aware that an audio podcast is a contradiction in terms because there's no such thing as a non-audio podcast. But anyway, bear with me. Uh, speaking of bearing with me, though, um, I do have to ask your patience with this video. I have to warn you, or with the audio, rather, I have to warn you up front. It's a little rough. Um, it's one of the first things that I recorded, and you'll hear some echo and some division of audio between Tom's voice and mine. If that stuff bothers you, unfortunately, I'm going to have to ask you to skip it. Um, please don't leave me a negative review. I'm trying to get better. Um, but if uh, you can bear with it, I think you'll find this to be a really interesting listen. Um, so again, here is Tom Mason, who has a fascinating career in comics. Thanks. I'm here for the Classic Comics Cavalcade podcast with um, Tom Mason, who has a long and storied history in the comics industry. thought we would uh, get into some of that, as well as um, hearing some of his stories about the early days of uh, working in the, the uh, black and white boom of the 1980s and the uh, image boom of the 1990s and all the other craziness and uh, chaos that you were a part of. So Excellent. Th- Good morning. Thanks for joining. Uh, so, uh, when did you join Malibu? Uh, well, it's hard to say that I actually joined it since I was there from the beginning. Okay. Uh, uh, Dave Overage gave me a call one day, and Dave and I had met working at Fantagraphics Books. And Dave said he had found somebody who would back his idea for a comic book company. And did I want in? <laughs> and because because I'm I'm very smart and also very stupid, I said yes. <laughs> um, and so I was, uh, I guess you could either call me employee number one or employee zero or something like that. So uh, that was that was the genesis of the idea, and then it just sort of snowballed from there. We had uh, we got office space, we bought desks and chairs, and then suddenly we were in the comic book business. What were some of the early books you put out? Uh, we put out, um, we had this idea, uh, Dave's idea. Um, that we do uh, creator-owned comics where the creator would own everything and that the creators would be the packagers and we would just be the facilitators. And so the first books um, reflected that. There was a Dark Wolf by Ari Jones and Butch Burcham 
and there was uh, Libby Ellis by Dennis Pimple and Norm Dwyer and I'm gonna blank on the oh the first the other one was uh, Stealth Force by Mike Valerio and uh, Patrick Olaf and um, we discovered early on that there are not that many creators who have a, a team together to package their own books so mm-hmm. then we started putting people together, matching up artists and writers and letterers and co and people like that, um, and then we became like a real company. There's some foreshadowing in your packaging, uh, or collecting a, a work that's prepackaged and and delivering it as a company. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, right. How did the how did the company take off? Now you launched basically right at the heart of the black and white boom of the late 1980s. Yeah, we were we were actually um, we started when the black and white boom was still going strong, and then six months later, when we finally launched the first books, the black and white bust had already started, um, and um, so we were sort of um, well, we were kind of we were still profitable, but we were not. I mean, books black and white books had been selling eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand copies an issue up until that point and by the time we got around to it um, you're looking at sales of 5,000 6,000 7,000 mm-hmm. so it was a completely different business model in like 6 or 7 months which must have been terrified as terrifying as a company right what do you do at that point yeah well we were we were uh, we were fairly lean because it was just Dave and myself early on and um, we were operating for the first 6 months out of a a spare room in Dave's house um, and so the overhead was very very low and so we didn't have this giant infrastructure that we had to support um, and we had done we we were able to do everything with just a couple of Macs um, and a laser printer and so it was um, it was quite a bit different than if we'd been starting 10 years earlier where mm-hmm. you have to invest in all this giant equipment right right and um Basically, you were just so were you just so excited about being in the comics industry and driving these projects that you decided to stay with it? Um, yeah, I mean, we're we're young we're young kids. We uh, we didn't really have any uh, any giant commitments otherwise, so it was just easy to and fun to put out comics and be a part of the thing that we had already that we'd been a part of since we were were kids. David had been a comic book fan since he was a kid. I'd been a comic book fan since we were a kid. All of a sudden, we're making comics. And it's it's easy to get caught up in in that. I think it's it's quite a bit different. I mean, I've I've worn I've worn tennis shoes all my life, and I don't have a desire to start a, a tennis shoe company or work for Nike. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But comics was something that was uh, quite a bit different from that. Yeah, yeah, there is some just something very unique about comics. I've been a fan all my life as well, and I've always been anxious to work in the industry in some capacity. And, you know, writing my, my history books has been a big part of that. And I don't know, there's just something special about this art form that just rewards long-time, long-time fans. And yeah, there's... It's become it, fanatics it, about it. It is, and there's, and there's a thing, and I don't know what it is. Uh, smarter people will probably put a name to this. But where you are participating in some aspect of making a thing, and then that thing is delivered to you in a box and you take it out and you hold it in your hand there's something really satisfying about 
that. Yes. Um, and you you look through it, and it, <laughs> I I try not to look through it too closely because all I ever see are the mistakes. But there's that <laughs> moment of joy when you first open up the box and you take the comic out of the box and you go, oh, I was a part of this. Right. Well, in your case, you wrote quite a few of them too, which is uh, a different kind of thrill as well. Yes, because then I really see all the mistakes. <laughs> I know. I I keep looking at my 1990s books. I'm like, oh my god, how do we allow that error to slip through? Oh, I know. And you you can proofread things a dozen times and have many many people take a look at it, and then the, the first thing you do when you pr- pick up the printed copy is go, oh yeah, I see that now. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things that was interesting about Malibu in the early days is that you were really four or five different imprints. There was Adventure <laughs> Comics, Air Cell. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Um... Well, brace yourself, because here it goes. Um, <laughs> so, um, Malibu Comics was financed by Scott Rosenberg, who ran a company called Sunrise Distribution, which was a comic book distributor based in Southern California. And at the time, I didn't know this when I started, but I knew this like two weeks after I started, um, because Dave didn't know it either, um, is that Scott had this great plan, and great would be in quotation marks, um, where he would be a comic book distributor and he would finance comic book companies on the side ah. and then he, would, then he would use his mail order business and his distribution business to sort of make those comics appear to be hot so then he could sell them through his other companies as as hot high-priced books okay and so he started he started eternity comics in new york and then he started amazing comics which I think was in West Virginia with David Campiti. Mm-hmm. And then and then because the boom was booming, um, it became a mathematical equation where if you had a new number one from a new company, it would sell better than a new number one from an old company. So he created another company called Imperial, which was run out of New York, and then another company called Wonder, which was run out of West Virginia. And so he had four companies <laughs> all running at the same time. <laughs> He had his distribution business, and he had a mail order business um, that was, and then he had a, a financing business that was doing all the billing and invoicing and payments and stuff. Um, and so that's where it sort of began. And then he started Malibu Comics through Dave, and um, and then <laughs> well, everything just hit the fan. The yeah. black and white, the black and white boom became the black and white bust. Um, the sales dropped from, you know, 80,000 copies an issue to 5,000 copies an issue. And um, um, there were uh, ethical uh, problems with being a distributor and a publisher and self-promoting your books and that kind of thing. And so... Yeah, um, you think? You think? Yeah, I know. So- <laughs> um, and so then... Uh, I forget the order. There's a comics journal story about all of this. It goes into huge detail. Right. Uh, but um, all those companies got shut down more or less. Campini spun off into his own business, um, and Eternity was sort of the last one standing. And then um, Eternity um, uh, got folded into Malibu, and the imprint was moved over to the West Coast, and we finished off... Um, publishing the Eternity books that have been solicited in addition to the Malibu books. And so then 
Sunrise went bankrupt, uh, and all pretty much everything was shut down, and all that was left was Malibu Comics. And that's when you published books like uh, Alienation adaptations and uh, uh, Harry Harrison science fiction stories, and this is actually a very broad line of series. Yes, and then we we shut down the Malibu Comics brand as an imprint, and we kept the Eternity brand, and then we were just Eternity for a long time, and then we inherited Air Cell Comics and Adventure Comics um, by um, by accident, and um, by accident. Yeah. <laughs> you, well, here we go again. <laughs> um, this is why it's fun doing these kind of history podcasts. It's like I never do these so, stories. So we'll do Adventure Comics first, because that's the easy one. Um, and, and I have forgotten. I don't know the timing of when we took each one over. Um, so uh, some historian will have to look into that. But Adventure Comics was run by Steve Milo, um, who ran American Entertainment in Virginia. And they were a mail-order business, and they also dealt in you know supposedly hot comics. Right. Um, and uh, Milo had five or six titles that he was publishing... And when sales collapsed uh, down to the level where um, you couldn't just put anything out and have it sell 80,000 copies, he wanted to get out. Um, and so uh, he made a deal with Scott. It was basically just, I'm going to get out. You take over the name and the imprint and um, finish off the books. And so we did that. Um, and we got the adventure imprint um, <laughs> by inheritance, basically. Um, and, no, no money changed hands. Nothing was purchased. Uh, we just picked up the contracts that he had, and then we had an imprint that we had to fill. Um, and that's when we decided to try to make it be um, like a licensed imprint for Alien Nation and Planet of the Apes, the Harry Harrison stuff, the Larry Niven stuff, and and things like that. To try to separate it from the Eternity books. And then, and then we got Air Cell, pretty much the same way. Uh, Air Cell was run by a guy named Ken Campbell in Canada, and the Air Cell name was somehow connected to his. He had some kind of air conditioning, air circulation, oh. ducting, heating, insulation business in okay. Canada. And huh. Air Cell was either the name of that company or a product from that company or something like that. But anyway, that, that's how the Air Cell name was invented. And Ken Campbell had. He was not a comic book fan. He had no interest in comics. He was just a money guy. And he knew, and I forget how, he knew Barry Blair, and he knew Barry Blair had like a studio of guys operating in a big house. And they were all making comics and doing stuff. And so Ken Campbell became the backer of Aerosol Comics, and Barry and his crew would be the suppliers of those comics. And then when the, the, the bust happened, and the sales of the books dropped, and it looked like Ken Campbell was going to actually have to work and become a part of the industry and do marketing and promotion and meet distributors and, you know, do conventions and actually be a publisher. He threw up his hands and said, Nah, I don't I'd rather stay in, yeah, rather stay yeah. in heating and air conditioning, yeah. Right. And so um, uh, he knew Scott, and Scott knew him, and Scott and Ken made a deal where we would just take take over the imprint and the titles, and then we inherited um, Barry Blair as part of the process um, mm -hmm. because 
Barry um, would be packaging the books under the air cell imprint that Malibu would publish and distribute. And in return, as part of that deal, Barry wanted to move from Canada to New York City, and Malibu would uh, contract with him for a two-year period as part of his immigration process. We'd be his Malibu would be his sponsor because he was working for us, and then that would allow him to emigrate down into New York City because he had this two-year employment contract. Oh, wow. Hmm. So that's how we ended up with uh, Barry Blair Books. A little complicated there. Yeah, just a little tangent. Yeah, when I, when I worked at Fantagraphics in um, the early 90s, the Blair Books were like a big cause to that. Like, people truly hated them. Uh, yeah, they were the only ones. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, it's 25 yeah. years since then, so uh, please, please share if you feel like it. <laughs> well, we, you know, we, the books, he had the, he had the deal. He had this two-year deal where he had to supply, either through him or through his associates, he had to supply one book a week. So every Tuesday, every Monday, he would ship a book to the office. Every Tuesday, it would arrive. Every Wednesday, it would go to the printer. Um, and so um, the books just... You know, they started out okay, and then they just deteriorated in sort of quality and uh, content, and they became yeah. they became things that they they sold really well, and they kept Malibu Comics afloat for that two year period. But they were not; it was not why I wanted to be in comics. No, there was just a lot of just awful stuff. I remember there was one in particular that. It was either the journal or Amazing Heroes that I worked for reviewed where um, it had real classic stereotypical racist images in it, um, just just like awful stuff like, uh, and they also put out like uh, Arthur sex and crap like that as well. It's like I, I always wonder like what motivated them to even put out books like this. Well, they made a huge amount of money. Oh, they kept, okay. They kept the company afloat, so. Um, I think the there was a um, some of the books were selling uh, five six times what our normal circulation was huh. for the book, and so um, it was just you know it's it's and I can't really defend it. It's just money, right? And the money the money kept the doors open. At a certain point, you make that calculation of uh, you know I'd like to stay in business, and <laughs> right. um, so. There you are. Well, at a certain point, the company did kind of pivot to put out some more higher quality work, like Dinosaurs for Hire and X Mutants and other series like that. Yeah, well, that, that's the stuff that we were more interested in uh, because that was, uh, well, they were, they were nicer books and books that you could show people. And so um, the uh, and there was a point at which Barry's contract ended and... Um, when Bob Jacob bought into the company, and then we uh, we were able to cut Barry loose and get back to the business of actual comics. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, I forget I always forget the actual timing because I don't have a timeline in front of me. But at some point Barry was gone. Bob Jacob had bought into the company. We now had an interactive video game division, and we were looking at uh, moving forward and getting into uh, real. Uh, real comics, comics that had color, comics that had wider distribution, comics that had some uh, 
brand name value. Right, so wider distribution. So that at that time, there were only a limited number of distributors, or there are several distributors, I mean, not a monopoly like we ha we've had for the last 20 years or so. And so it was a big part of the business to try and be distributed through multiple distributors. Yeah, there were, I, I forget the number because it always fluctuated. There were seven or eight or nine of them. There was Diamond in Capital City, and then there were smaller guys like Friendly Franks and um, Comics Hawaii, and there was... Uh, there was a place in Texas. There was a place. There are a couple of places in Canada. Um, there was another one in New York. Um, and so you could just, you know, you just could saturate the entire country through multiple distributors. And so, as you continued uh, gaining the success as the uh, publisher of like mainstream color books, um, it was basically the same era that uh, the pre-image founders really started to catch fire. Um, Blackfeld put out X-Force number one in 1991 and sold four million copies and at the same time uh, you guys had started to talk to him well that's what's interesting is that we knew uh, not me specifically but Dave Ulbrich the Malibu publisher had known Rob Liefeld for years before that um, when we were just starting in 87 um Dave and Rob Liefeld knew each other and had connected and Liefeld was even then looking for someone to publish Youngblood number one hmm. and this was this was all before he started working for Marvel in DC this was before he was actually Rob Liefeld when he was just Rob um, and that didn't work out because right as we were talking to him Rob got a job doing Hawk and Dove for DC and then his career just went zooming right um but Dave and Rob had always kept in close contact, and they'd always um, chatted at conventions. They'd always kept in touch. And so um, even once Rob Liefeld became Rob Liefeld, um, they were still uh, connected. So it was, it was through that connection that we found out that those guys were unhappy at Marvel and looking to break out into something different. And I love how Rob's first attempt to break away was something called Exterminators, which was uh, all filled with derivative characters. Yeah, he had done. Um, I wish I, I wish I had a copy of the ad. He came to us. He was. I actually well, have it. We have it in the book, which you'll see when you get your copy. Oh, cool. Um, I'm sure versions of this vary. And, uh, Rob probably has a different version, and Dave probably has a different version. My understanding of it is that um, Rob was uh, not pissed off at Marvel, but Marvel had been making statements that it's not the creators that sell books, it's the characters. And right. there was some interest, I think, in Rob having his own characters to kind of prove them wrong. And so he was going to start this Exterminator's book um, as his... Uh, as his shot across the bow. Here's what I can do without you, I think. Um, and so we, I think we designed the ad for him and we got the ad space in, I think it was CBG for him to put the ad up. And um, I don't know what happened after that because I can't remember, but I think the, the point was made and Marvel got the, I think they got upset at the, uh, the exterminator's name. And then, uh, you know, it went from there. But they very quickly decided to step away, make the money themselves. And how did 
Malibu be able to come in and uh, kind of ride the slipstream of, of uh, the success of the original Image founders? How'd you get well, into getting the deal with them in the first place? Well, that was that was Dave Obrich again. Dave knew Rob, and Rob said, "Listen, we're all having all the guys who want to break off from Marvel are having a meeting." Uh, oh, I just realized I got the title wrong. It's ex executioners, not executioners, exterminators. That's it. Not exterminators. Executioners. Yes. Yeah. You'll have to go back and re-edit the tape now. <laughs> um, Rob, Rob and Dave had been talking, and Rob said that there was going to be a meeting of these founders. Uh, down at Mark Silvestri's house in Malibu, and did we want to come down and have a chat? And um, so we did. We went down and we met with them. And um, you know, they're uh, they were all pretty fired up about doing something. Um, and they were they were still kicking around what it could be and how it would work and and stuff. And they were looking for um, infrastructure. Um, they wanted somebody to deal with the printer. They wanted somebody to deal with the, the distributors. They wanted somebody to, you know, help them pick out paper stock and holographic covers and foils and stuff like that. So they really just wanted an, uh, an engine in place that could do all that uh, lifting for them so that they could concentrate on writing and drawing and stuff. Uh, and we had, by that time, we had a, we had a nearly... Uh, I wouldn't call it a perfect engine, but we had a uh, uh, we had an engine in place where we had we had relationships with all the distributors. We knew all the printers. We knew you know we knew how to get that stuff. Once you delivered the art to us, we knew what to do with it to get a book out in the stores. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was just a question of making a deal. I know that they had talked to Dark Horse about making a deal. I know they had gone back to Marvel to see if Terry Stewart would give them a better deal for creator-owned stuff, and Terry said no. Um, he, I think, had, well, accounts vary, but um, yeah. uh, Todd had said at dinner the night after the meeting that Terry again had reiterated that it's not the artist, it's not the writer, it's the characters that sell the comics, it's the characters that people care about, and so he wasn't going to make a deal with the image guys for the terms they wanted, um, and so that's when they 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 sort of became official. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They just said we're going to try this and see what happens. Basically, um, uh, yes, the stories we tell it in the book um, over the Fourth of July uh, San Diego Comic Con in nineteen ninety one. Um, the dinner happened with uh, with Dave Obrick and. He said, of course, we'll take your books. We'd be crazy not to. Um, Liefeld asked Ulbricht during the dinner if Malibu would also be willing to publish comics created by Valentino and Larson. Ulbricht quickly said he would. No fool he, of course. Okay, I'll go with that. Um, so by April 1992, the first issue of Youngblood came out, and um, you were at the center of a hurricane. Yeah, that was funny because the... My memory is that we had solicited the book once, and we had orders for it, and then we had to re-solicit it because it was running late, and orders jumped up. Uh -huh. I, think it, I think it went from 400,000 initial copies to 600,000 initial copies, and that was a hint that you know, usually when you have to re-solicit a book, sales drop a little bit, but now sales had jumped exponentially, and that was a, 
uh, a sign that we were really on to something because Rob um, Rob also had celebrity status as a personality because he'd done that Levi's Jeans commercial and he was appearing on um, MTV I think and other stuff and so there was this real sort of cult of personality around him and um, and the orders were just were reflective of that and when the orders went up from 400,000 to 600,000 um, all of a sudden the other image guys were getting really excited about getting their book out and then it became it became a sort of uh, can you top this game my book will sell my, my right. number one will sell better than your number one um, and then we did when Youngblood 1 came out we did a well we we did Rob did a signing at Golden Apple on Melrose in Los Angeles uh, that was just crazy there were there was a line around the block there was a huge rush to get in and it was just it was really um, it was like a celebrity movie premiere just incredible to think about yeah it was nuts Valentino tells the story of that year Chicago Comic Con which was over 4th of July weekend where they couldn't be on the con floor because the image creators were driving too much traffic so they put them outside by the pool and still the lines were so long they spent the entire day just signing autographs and looking at people's belt buckles yes I can believe that I wasn't there but I, that, that's definitely the way it seemed and the same thing at the San Diego con that same year so how did that feel for you guys putting out these books seeing these sales that were 10, 20, 50 times higher than your regular books were selling um, just from a logistical standpoint, was that a, a fun project or was that a nightmare of its own? Well, it's just it's it's neither good nor bad. It's interesting because okay. it's it's fun because all of a sudden, um, you know, we're fielding. Image didn't have a central office at that time. Mm -hmm. It was just the studios, and so we were film we were fielding uh, dozens of phone calls from pretty much everybody because. You know our our number, our numbers in all our books. It was not a secret, so people would just call up, and it would be everything from a fan saying, "Can I talk to Rob? Can I talk to Jim? Can I talk to Todd?" to <laughs> um, to, the, to the to the Los Angeles Times, to movie studios, to whatever. Um, and you know we'd have to patiently explain to them, "Well, there is no there is no image person you could talk to. You could talk to Rob in his studio. You could talk to Todd in his studio." Or you can talk to Jim in his studio, but there's not like a figurehead at the corporate office who mm -hmm. can field all this. Um, so that was that was a crazy, busy, weird time. Um, and then um, the uh, the books kept selling better and better. Jim Lee's book, well, Todd's book outsold Rob's. I think Todd's book sold a million copies, and then Jim Lee's book slightly outsold Todd's book. Um, and so it just, it seemed like, well, it seemed like it would never end, even though we've all been in the business long enough to know that it's sooner or later, um, it would start to pull back. Yeah. How did it, I, we have a note in the book in August, 1992, Malibu sold more comics than DC. That's correct. Which it must've just been incredible for this company that just a couple of years ago was publishing these small black and white books. Well, yeah, but you have to be you have to be honest about that because the it was the and I forget the number I think there were five or six image titles in that month and those outsold 
the entirety of DC's output for that month, and Malibu Comics' output was just a very, very small <laughs> portion of that. So it was right. really, it was really um, uh, the image books uh, under the Malibu umbrella, but still, it's just the image books that outsold all of DC's output. Right. And that was the that was the real sort of uh, that was uh, very telling. It was also very um, I think it was scary to some people, and it was uh, it made a lot of other people very enthusiastic. Did you feel like you were kind of on the edge of a revolution? Um, or is it more that you were riding the wave and um, just enjoying yeah. it as it was happening? Because, because the thing is, I think we always knew that it wasn't our revolution. Yeah. Because we weren't we weren't writing or drawing the books, and we weren't those seven guys. So it was their revolution. Mm-hmm. And so we were just um, we weren't even a packaging company for them. We were just uh, publishers. Their books came in, they got sent to the printer, they got they got sent back from the printer to the stores. And so it wasn't like uh, we didn't have creative ownership. Uh, of, right their work that was theirs and so it's their it was their wave and we were just sort of figuring out because we've been in the business for a few years by that point and there's always a point at which you know sales start to dip or enthusiasm wanes or the next big thing comes along and we're just trying to figure out what that is how long how long will this last and because at a certain point you know they don't they didn't need us right well, that only happened. Yeah, that happened eleven months later. So it was a very quick turnaround on that. Yeah, yeah, because there's no, there's no magic formula to getting a comic book printed. You you talk to the printer, you, and they have a system that's set up to distribute the comics out to the market, and the distributor has the relationships with the retailers, and so it's not it's not alchemy. It's a very clear, you know, you can you can list it in, you can list all ten steps in order and you just follow them and you can make a comic book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you made enough from that 10% cut that you got from the sales to really finance the next wave of the company, which uh, was pretty spectacular, I think. Yeah, we did We did two things. One is that we were able to uh, – maybe it's three things. Anyway, we were able to build up the coloring department infrastructure. So now we had um, like a 20-person staff of in-house colorists um, who could do computer coloring for us. And we had um, a huge pile of cash that we were just sitting on. And we had, um, there was a guy named Bob Jacob who had a company called Acme Interactive, which did video games for Sega and Capcom and other places on, um, on assignment, um, on licensed properties uh, based on movies and TV shows. And uh, he wanted to buy into Malibu Comics and so around the same time, he bought in, and um, now we had a video game division and a comic book company, and, and we had this huge pile of cash. Mm-hmm. So it seemed, um, and <laughs> this is where it gets funny, because, um, or just crazy, is because Bob, Bob didn't understand how the business worked, because he came from video games, and he was, <laughs> he was annoyed that somehow we had we had let the image guys go off and make their own company oh, uh-huh. and, and, t- and take their creations with them. And we could never, no matter how many times we danced around this, we could never get him to understand that that wasn't a mistake, that was the deal. Uh-huh. And um, 
And so he he kind of came around to the idea of, well, we got to stop that from happening again. <laughs> happening again. So let's make some stuff that we own. Okay. And that was that was sort of where the next phase started. So that was part of the theory behind the Ultraverse, where you gave some creator ownership, but you also owned all the IPs. And well, you actually, we gave no we gave no creator ownership as it's defined. Ah. Um, uh-huh. Because there's there's no ownership. Because there's no ownership. There's no ownership. The the company owned everything, but there was a. Um, yeah, I'm going to blank on the word, but there's a participation. Okay. So, because ownership implies control, and mm-hmm. ownership implies that you can uh, you can do stuff, and you can't. The company owns everything. You just get, if the company does something with the property, then you have a very well defined participation uh, fee that you get. So, if it goes like um, if Steve Gerber's Sludge got uh, turned into a TV show. There's a very clear path for how he gets paid for licensing, for merchandising, for other stuff, and that percentage is locked in in perpetuity, and it gets passed on to his estate. Okay. Got it. So he owns uh, he owns uh, the ability to make money from this property forever, even though he doesn't yes. control it. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So how did the, how did that uh, idea of the Ultraverse... What turned into the Ultraverse uh, evolved from you guys. Was it something you had in mind quickly as soon as you saw the windfall that you're receiving from Image? Uh, we thought we should do something, but we weren't sure what it was. We've been working on a comic book called The Protectors, um, sort of behind the scenes. Uh, in we had it, we had it, we had it in long-term development with R.A. Jones for quite a while. Um, but that was really just a standalone sort of thing. We weren't sure what to do with it yet. Um, and um, when um, when Bob said, when Bob gave the new directive, which was just, "Hey, let's let's get some stuff we own." Um, Chris Alm just made a list. Well, here are the three ways you can do it. And um, the third way was actually the best way. It was um, find some guys who could write comics that had um, enthusiasm from the core retailers and build a writers-based universe around their ideas. Mm-hmm. Put, it, put them in a room, lock them up with cookies, milk, and steak, and figure out what's going to come out of that at the end of three days. And um, and that was the idea that... That was the winning idea. That's what we did. We rounded up um, a core of creators... We locked him in a hotel room in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we we, <laughs> we squeezed them until they uh, spit out some ideas. Uh, and it turned out to be a really intriguing line. Um, the, so the, uh, first, of all, I think it was called the Superverse, then you turned into Ultraverse, and um, launched with a, quite a bit of hype uh, in 1993. Yeah, we had um, we had a million dollars um, to spend. And that was the, that was the mandate. What can we do? What can we do that we've always wanted to do, and uh, could never afford? And so that's when we hit on the idea of making TV commercials and doing uh, these giant posters in and around uh, major cities, and um, 
we had we had hired uh, two PR firms to help get the word out, and we held a giant uh, retailer conference uh, near the office, and where we flew people out and fed them and wined them and dined them and showed them how the Ultraverse stuff was going to get made, and um, so we just we had this uh, we had this giant plan, uh, and then we we backed it with cash. Yeah, and this is at a time when the industry was flush with cash. Um, yes. My favorite story from that year is that Turok Dinosaur Hunter from uh, Valiant sold 1.7 million copies at uh, to distributors. Yeah. Um, of which only about 200,000 actually got sold to to readers. But uh, regardless, there was this amen, amazing uh, frenzy of interest in the industry at the time. Yeah, it, it was all you know. It's all it's all based on the you know the bubble economy that doesn't last. But for for a time, for like a year or so, it was uh, it was awesome because you know you had you had um, everywhere you would go, like in San Diego, it there was just this. In, excitement and enthusiasm in the air where everybody was talking about comics comics could be something comic could comics could do something you know it was just you know it was thrilling mm-hmm. i can imagine and then you even put out cd-rom comics software oh yeah because uh it was that was interesting too because even though the format was you know was was not ready for the material um <laughs> yeah there were, com- there were companies that were trying to do this kind of stuff, and we were happy to license it out and see where it went. Yeah, so you tried all kinds of different things. And along with the Ultraverse, you also licensed Star Trek titles, and so you were really kind of moving into different areas. You put out Rocket Comics as well, so you were really just kind of expanding in a bunch of different areas. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and you know, it's funny because... Uh, you know, some of that stuff just crashed and burned. Um, like <laughs> As the, they will. Yeah, like the Rocket Comics stuff. Um, we said we said very specifically from the beginning that the direct here's here's what your sales will be in the direct market. They'll be this, and it, that's not enough to support a line of comics based on a rock and roll band. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is you need to have a guarantee that, um, and we had this huge plan that. Um, Back in the era when they still had record stores, that um, you know you had to have distribution in record stores, and then you had to have um, distribution when the band would go on tour, so you could sell it at the uh, at the venue, and then you had to have a mail order component for people who don't have any connection to the band touring or whatever and want to get a copy, and we were assured by the company that uh, we made the deal with that they would handle all of that and set it all up. And of course, they couldn't. They couldn't do it at all. And um, all we ended up with was selling them in the direct market for exactly what we said they would sell for. Yeah. Um, then we found out one of the cool things about uh, the, well, it's not really cool. One of the horrible things about the record industry is how corrupt it is. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that um, the way they divide up assets for a band is that some company owns the lyrics, some company owns the band's logo, some company owns the band's licensing rights, some company owns the band's likenesses. And so you have to deal with, there is no one company where you make a blanket deal. Oh, what a nightmare. And so, yeah, so for some bands that we wanted, there's this path of everybody who had their hand out. And we're like, 
look, this book is going to sell 4,000 copies. There isn't, there isn't the kind of Rolling Stones band on tour kind of money that you're used to getting. Right. So uh, the imprint just sort of imploded on itself because there was no, there was no support except direct market support. Wow. How many, how many books did you actually put out under that imprint? Under Rocket? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. Uh, this is the kind of thing I... Six, somebody would have to look that up for me. It's the kind of thing I get fascinated by as a historian. Uh, but, okay, so back to Ultraverse. Um, so the, all those books premiered pretty well. And then did you quickly see the sales drop off? You also were at a particularly competitive time. I mean, there's uh, one of the quirky things about the 90s, uh, looking at it historically, is like there's trends that happen in certain years. And 93 was the year of multiple new comics imprints. I think there's like 23 new comics imprints that debuted at some point that year. Yeah, that's crazy. And so what happened is, um, so we had this we had this brilliant plan that we had created in our own little bubble, where in um, September 92, we would meet with uh, all the creative people that were going to develop the Ultraverse. And then a year later, in September 93, that was going to be our original launch year. Mm-hmm. And then we found out, or lunchtime, and then we found out through the grapevine that, oddly enough, we were not the only people in the world who had noticed the success of Image Comics. <laughs> and um, and uh, Dark Horse was doing a superhero universe, and they were going to debut theirs in June of 93. And we thought, you know, we, we can beat that. We can, do that. we can do better. So we bumped up our uh, launch date from September 93 to June 93. Um, and then we, we sped up um, the production process like crazy um, to try to beat them to solicitation and try to beat them to market. Uh, because we thought uh, of all the other universes that were being launched that time, they were the, the chief competitor. And then at the same time, Image had their universe. Marvel was ramping up. Uh, one of the things that Marvel does sometimes brilliantly is that whenever they feel threatened, they always launch a crap load of books. Uh-huh. Uh, and so Marvel was increasing their output, and DC was increasing their output a little bit. And so it was really, it was this hugely competitive, crazy time that yeah. obviously, obviously did not and could not have survived for long. Yeah, Jim Shooter launched the uh, Defiant Universe at that time, and Marvel went after Shooter as well. He had a yes. he had that comic called Plasm, and they tried to claim that Plasm was a copyright infringement. So like, there was this just pitted battles between all the companies at that point. Yes, and then everybody was trying to trademark every noun they could possibly get as a superhero name. Especially ones that had death or blood in them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you you, you go to the trade, we had a we had an in-house trademark attorney and um, we'd give him lists of all the names for the Ultraverse characters that we wanted, and he'd just come back and say, nope, Image has it, nope, Marvel has it, nope, DC has it. Uh-huh. And, and and they weren't even characters that had been developed yet. They were just um, names that Marvel and DC and Image were trademarking. It's crazy. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, it's 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 part of the history. It's part of the, the part of those crazy times. Oh, it's it's yeah, it's part of the stuff that I just love writing about. It. People ask me why why are you fascinated in the '90s? There's so much junk, but it's there wasn't junk. A lot of great comics as well as just great stories about people messing with each other. The the weird smallness of this industry. 
Oh, and, and we're all we're all just petty little uh, little jackasses sometimes. And, it, <laughs> it's, I, and it, the thing is, I assume that it's not specific to comics. I assume it's like this with the shoe industry, with the car industry, with everything else. It's just that comics is really the only business I can think of where product comes out every Wednesday. Right. And so there's this there's this heightened frenetic speed at which everything in comics happens. Mm-hmm. Well, and also it's a small enough industry where people are talking all the time. And it's also an industry where you have this interesting thing where everyone's kind of introverted because we're all writers or artists or something. So spend a lot of time sitting alone in a room. And that breeds a sort of like deep possession of the stuff that you love. Yes. And so it just makes it makes your reactions a little more intense than they would be if you are like a shoe company and you're running, uh, you know, races every weekend or something. Yeah, there's there's also uh, in comics um, there's a there's a certain because of the types of personalities that are attracted to comics, and, and I realize this is a blanket statement and it's not completely true, but there is a lot of misinformation and paranoia and when you sit alone in your house and you're waiting to hear from your editor and the rumor mill has told you that your book might be cancelled or your book might or you might get fired or whatever, there's a certain amount of anxiety that builds up in the community over what's really going on versus what's actually going on. Right. And um, that creates that creates all these weird rumors and all these weird feuds and all these weird um, Misconceptions of what's going on, and so you have you have that added into the industry, the industry itself, and it's just it can get crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so okay, so that leads into my favorite story that I love capturing for the book, which was the misunderstanding people have about the last days of the Ultraverse. Oh, that yeah, okay, we'll go there. Um, <laughs> if you're okay with that. Tom, because yeah, I think this is this might be the most fascinating part of the whole thing. Okay, the um, so everything everything was sort of collapsing. Um, at first, we thought it was just us. We thought just Ultraverse sales were dropping, um, and then we realized no, no. Pretty much, when you look at the numbers, everybody's numbers are going way down, and it becomes this war of attrition. How long can you? How long can you last? How much money do you have? And you know what can you do to last as long as you can? And um, we were around um, sometime around 19, sometime in 1993, um, I'm going to say towards the end of the summer, we had attracted investment from a company called WSE, which stood for Worldwide Sports and Entertainment. And um, that was a company that was run by these uh, goofballs. Uh, one of which was um, a former Goldman Sachs executive. Another guy had been responsible in some part for Live Aid. Um, And a third guy who looked like a hitman. Wow. Um, And I I forget what he... Anyway, they they represented a Malaysian businessman called Ananda Christian. 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 Um, And they pumped five million bucks into the company under the idea that... um, Malibu Comics is going to be a superstar company like Marvel or DC, and then they would sell it and cash out. Um, but they were buying in at the time when the industry as a whole was collapsing, and so sales were going down, and they were instantly getting um, worried 
about their cash. As and well so, they should, yeah. Yeah, they would. We had a lot of long meetings with them where it's mostly them just being angry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and um, you're like, we can't do anything about it. This is out of our control. Yeah, it's like, okay, we put the books out. And we can't, the way the market works, they drop 5,000 copies a month because that's what they do. Um, but they were getting progressively angry and worried. And um, they were telling us, and, and we had been shopping the company around for uh, a sugar daddy for a little bit of time. We wanted to be under a protective umbrella of, uh, I know 20th Century Fox had been contacted. I know that Saban Entertainment had come around to take a look at it, um, but nothing really was going on. And then there was a WonderCon in Oakland in... 1994, and Paul Levitz had approached Scott at that convention. And Who was the said, executive editor at DC or vice president of DC at the time, or something like that? Yes, whatever, whatever Levitz's title was, he was like the head guy at DC, a guy at DC who could make stuff happen. Um, and he said to Scott something along the lines of, "You know, if you guys ever need a hand, if you guys ever need help, you know, feel free to reach out to me." And so, we, the four of us, uh, me, Chris Alms, Dave Overton, and Scott, got together and tried to figure out, what does that mean? <laughs> What's he really saying? What, what could he do? And um, so we took it, we thought it meant that perhaps he could buy us. Would that be cool? Yeah. So we took, we took it back to the guys at WSE. Uh, Chris and Scott and I flew out to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where they were headquartered, and we told them of this. Uh, we'd originally gone there because they were going to tell us uh, how many people we had to lay off in order to survive, and we ended the meeting with them telling us, no, contact Paul Levitz and see if he wants to buy the company. <laughs> so, um, because they, they suddenly they smelled that they get their investment back. Right. Um, so, um, Scott contacted Paul, um, and, you know, it was much more formal than this, but it was basically, so, you guys want to buy us? <laughs> so, uh, Paul said, sure, we'll buy you, and then the plans were put into place um, for Time Warner to come and buy Mount Alibu Comic, and mm-hmm. guys, we didn't want people to know, so they came they came after hours from the Time Warner acquisition people. They snuck into the office. They snuck out boxes of financial records and stuff. Um, and we had off-site meetings with the the team that ran DC at the, at the time, which was Paul Levitz, Bruce Bristow, Bob Wayne, and Lillian Lazerson, who was DC's in-house counsel. Um, and we were good to go. Uh, throughout the summer, we were negotiating with Time Warner and their acquisition people. And it looked like it looked like sooner or later we were going to be bought by DC. And we started having um, editorial meetings um, um, off-site with some of the Malibu staff to plot a post-DC version of Malibu Comics. And by the time San Diego rolled around that year, um, certain people at DC who were in the know and certain people at Malibu who were in the, the know kept passing each other in the hallway in San Diego, giving each other high fives and smiling. <laughs> so would this and have been like the Wildstorm imprint ended up being for DC a little later on where you're your own independent company under the DC umbrella? 
Yeah, the way the way um, at San Diego that year, Chris Allman and I had a breakfast meeting with Paul, and he outlined what his plans were for Malibu Comics, which was you know, the Ultraverse was the Ultraverse was all nice and cool, and we're going to keep it alive and do that kind of stuff. But Paul had this vision where there was a lot of stuff, a lot of opportunity that he was getting through Time Warner that um, his guys in New York were not interested in doing. Um, because the guys, and I understand, I understand this completely, and I think everybody else would too, the editorial staff based in New York was really the DC Universe people. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you, you work in comics, you get a job at DC Comics, you're in charge of Superman or Batman or Robin or whatever, and that's it. You don't want to start doing uh, video game comics for the Time Warner group because you're the Batman editor. Right. And there's, there's, there's no, that's not even, in my mind, that's not even a lateral move. That's just, you know, that's like punishment, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, I understood where the DC guys in New York were coming from. And they didn't want to do that stuff. And Paul said, these are opportunities that I don't want to lose out on. Um, and so um, he saw us as being kind of people who could package the work that was coming out of Time Warner that was not connected to the DC Universe. And in the meantime, he also wanted uh, Chris and Dave and myself to come up with like the next thing. Because we had done, um, we had made the deal for Image, we had made the deal for Gavira, we had done the deal for the Ultraverse, and Paul was curious, like, all right, what's the fourth or fifth thing would be got? Right, because you had done this a, a few times at that point. Yeah, we'd, we'd always sort of reinvented the wheel with something. And um, he was curious to see if we had money, what would we do next? And mm-hmm. so that was that was the plan. That's very exciting stuff. And it would have kept the company alive. It would have kept almost all of the people employed. Uh, and then uh, there was a... So after San Diego, everything looked good. Uh, we were going to be a, a satellite company of DC, and so be it. Then, then it just all turned to crap. Uh, <laughs> I love the way you say that. There was a uh, there was a convention. Uh, Dark Horse had hosted a convention in Portland uh, sometime in September, sometime in October of that year, '94. And um, by then, the word had really leaked out that perhaps. Malibu Comics was in play, and perhaps DC Comics was going to buy them. And, um, like, the Monday after that convention, uh, Dave Oprich got a call from Terry Stewart uh, at Marvel. Who was, and Terry Stewart was the head guy at Marvel. And uh, Terry, <laughs> Terry said to Dave, Hey, so, I hear you guys are for sale, and the DC is going to buy you. Is that true? <laughs> wow, okay. Pretty bold. And then, um, uh, uh, well, yes, that's true. Uh, we are we are in play, and DC is going to buy us. And Terry said, "Listen, don't sell to DC until I can get back to you." And we told Terry, "Well, you've got X amount of time because the offer is now on the table, and it looks to be a done deal, and we're all you know we're moving forward." Um, and um, let's see if I can get the details of this correct. The Marvel came in. Um, they they loaned us 
a million dollars. Because by that time, and against the possible purchase price, because at that time we were book to book with our printer. Uh, we'd been losing about $200,000 a month and we're paying our printer on. We had no credit with our printer anymore. So we were on pay as you go terms. And uh, so that million dollars would just would keep us going while um, a deal or a potential deal was being brokered with Marvel. And then um, Marvel waited like, I'll get the timing wrong, a week, two weeks, somewhere in there. Um, and Marvel swooped in with a better offer. And the guys from WSE were like, uh, well, as long as we get our money back, that's the deal we want. And so they pressed for Marvel to buy the company so they could get their payout. And that's how Marvel ended up with uh, Malibu Comics. And what we heard later from people who were inside Marvel is that when word leaked out that Malibu was up for sale, uh, Ron Perlman... Oh, I can't remember who his hatchet man was. Uh, he had a guy. Uh, he was the sleazy owner of Marvel Comics at the time who only cared about extracting every dollar possible from the company. And no love yeah, for comics whatsoever. No, and Ron Perlman had a... Uh, Ron Perlman was, had leveraged Marvel Comics as... had used Marvel's position as the number one company, uh, the number one comic book publishing company in the U.S. against his other businesses. And if, and so he had ordered. Uh, I can't think of that guy's name. I can I can picture it in my head. But anyway, he had ordered that guy to order Terry Stewart to make sure that Malibu Comics did not get purchased by DC, because if DC had bought Malibu Comics and DC was able to grow Malibu's market share, then the combined market share of DC and Malibu would topple Marvel, and Marvel would no longer be number one, and that would threaten uh, Perlman's financial empire. So it was not it was not a creative like DC wanted to buy us as a creative decision and Marvel wanted to buy us as a financial decision. Right. And and Marvel had more money. As and, a hedge really, not even to as like an investment, more just to make sure that they were protecting themselves against downside risk. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And they had no they had no plan for it whatsoever. They just didn't know what to do with it. And so um, they swooped in and all of a sudden, uh, within the span of a month, we'd gone from um, working on a possible Green Lantern team-up to uh, <laughs> to uh, being the happy house of ideas. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So how did that feel at the time? That must have been... Uh, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it must have been a challenge. Well, it's a huge disappointment because we've been spending the last seven or eight months uh, getting our heads wrapped around being part of D.C. And... Um, so all of a sudden, within the span of a couple of weeks, now we're a part of Marvel. And Marvel, um, you know, Marvel didn't have any idea um, what to do with us. Marvel didn't have uh, a ton of money. Marvel had just gone through a crap load of editorial layoffs themselves. They had made cutbacks and canceled titles and lost staff. And all of a sudden, you know, here come, here come the new kids to play. And um, so there's that. Um, and um, you know there was no vision there was no here's what we're going to do Right. so we're just sort of you know, we had this great plan in place that even though it was kind of fuzzy it was still a plan at DC and at Marvel was just like alright what do you guys want to do and the whole time the comic market is collapsing 
the worst year of its yeah. history, basically. And you're basically assigned to this new company that doesn't care at all about you. It's like the worst possible time to be merging. Um, so you're just you were fighting all these uphill battles all at the same time. Yes, and um, and it, it wasn't so much that Marvel uh, Marvel was not indifferent because Marvel had just paid a, a crap load of money to acquire it. So there was there was the impetus on Terry Stewart's part to sort of make that work somehow, and so um, you know to not just piss away the money mm -hmm. and. Um, so he wanted to do something, but Terry Stewart was not a comic book guy. Um, he had, he was uh, formerly part of the mergers and acquisitions team of uh, Ron Perlman. <laughs> wow. So he, he, he didn't... He did not that, his world. Not his world. And so, um, and the head of Marvel's marketing department was a guy who used to be the head of marketing for M&M's. So he didn't understand comics either. His idea, his idea was just make everything a different color. <laughs> Which you actually did with characters like Prime, right? You changed his costume, if I remember right. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's all it's all M and M's, and so um, then um, so it was just a question of how to make the investment pay off, how to keep the company afloat again, and you know what can you do? And we had Marvel was sliding into bankruptcy, so they had no extra money, and. There were limitations on what we could do um, based on what we used to do. We used to do stuff that was sort of fast and loose, and we'll just figure it out later on the fly. And now it was all – everything was meetings. Everything had to be approved, and there were many layers of stuff. Um, and, and it was hard to get ideas pushed through. Uh, that's not a criticism of Marvel. That's just the way corporate bureaucracy works versus the culture that we used to have. Right. Um, and um, – we were going to get one shot, and so we did a relaunch of the books um, at a lower price with some new characters mixed with familiar characters and under the Marvel umbrella as part of the Marvel catalog. But then during this time, Marvel also bought Heroes World, uh -huh. um, which, which, which threw the distribution market into disarray. Um, so it was really a horrible time to do a relaunch of anything. And there we were. That's a fascinating story for a future podcast, the Marvel's purchase of Heroes World. Maybe the worst <laughs> business decision in the string of many, many poor business decisions. Oh, I can see, see where they were going because I sat in on some of the meetings where you know they wanted to have this sort of vertically integrated company that had trading cards and comic books and control of their distribution and, you know, to do take all these things that Marvel did or had access to and put them all together under Marvel's ownership, but they just didn't have the people and the resources to sort of make that work. And the card industry was also a bubble that was going to collapse. Right. And so, so having a giant piece of a, another bubble was not a wise decision. And then distribution, Heroes World was probably not the best partner to do it because they were very specifically a regional distributor with no national presence and they couldn't ramp up in time and so it was just it was just a fiasco and we were stuck in the middle of it and very well, within a year or so you, your company basically collapsed right or that the the imprint basically collapsed i should say yeah well i got out um I quit in June of 95. So Marvel bought us in November of 94 
and by June I had resigned. Okay. And Chris had resigned as well. Uh, Dan Danko had resigned. Uh, a lot of people just, you know, would just go to something else. So what'd you go and do? <laughs> well, I, th- I thought, and he, I keep asking you the the probing questions, don't I? Yes. Because well, <laughs> the, the, the thought process of my brain is not. Uh, it makes no sense in hindsight. I thought, um, brilliantly at the time, that I would just go work in television. I thought, you know, I would just, I could make the easy transfer from comic books to creating TV shows. Okay. And, um, even though I had no experience doing that. And, um, but when I was at, at <coughs> I'd been involved in some pitch meetings. I'd gone, we pitched Rune to, um, uh, Gail Ann Hurd and we pitched uh, a couple of other things in LA and we'd had um, a bunch of movie people up at the Malibu offices that I'd met and so uh, it, it didn't seem like it'd be that hard and so I said well that's it I'm going <laughs> to quit comics and I'm going to go into television and uh, and so I, I did uh, uh, Chris Alm and myself and uh, Dan Danko we went off and we formed a little company and we decided we were going to work in television together as uh, as writers. And um, we failed miserably at that for about six months. Um, we had we got an agent because we knew a person who knew an agent. And we got a lawyer because we knew a person who knew a good lawyer. Uh-huh. And we got meetings and we pitched stuff. And then we revised our pitches uh, accordingly and went out with, and pitched more stuff. And we sold we sold a show that never went anywhere, and then uh, Chris got a job running a video game company, so he split. And then Dan and I stayed writing partners for the last whatever it is twenty five years or so, and we actually did um, we write produce TV shows. I think we've done I think it's six hundred episodes of children's entertainment over the last uh, twenty five years. Oh, we've written oh. like seventy children's books. Uh, we have an Emmy. We have, uh, yeah, so stuff. Yeah, that's pretty great. We just finished the show. Uh, we just finished the show last week. We just did 52 episodes of a syndicated show out of uh, Italy. Um, and before that, uh, we did uh, 104 episodes of a TV show for Nickelodeon um, for the skateboard guy, Rob Durdick, um, called Wild Grinders. And we just we just keep busy. That's cool. So in a way, I think you kind of found a lot more stable world to work in. <laughs> yeah. Who would have guessed television was more stable than comics? Oh, <laughs> good point. But uh, no, it sounds like that's that's a lot better place to be. I, I've heard this over and over when doing interviews that um, comics is just a, too small of an industry to really do well. Yes. Well, and it's. Um the, you know, there's a, let's make up a number. There's 10,000 people that want to work in comics and there's five jobs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the only people that pay a living wage really are Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to, and even, even then, like a writer could do two books a month and an artist could do one book a month, but that's, you're not even approaching a middle-class living at that point. Right. And so there's not, there's just not the money in comics to do that for very long 
unless you really hit it in a solid way and you're you know you're in with Marvel and DC for the long haul. And even there, you know, you're constantly under pressure to deliver the next big idea. You're you're dependent on the industry's overall health and your um, popularity. <coughs> Excuse me. There's there's no room for the next Don Perlin or the next George Tuscan. You've got to be you got to be somebody. Mm-hmm. Just being just being the guy who is reliable and turns in his 22 pages a month is not is not good enough anymore. Yeah, well, that's that's why I kind of gave up my comic dreams, just working software and just do uh, comics on the side because, yeah, it's just not worth it from a financial investment time no, because, standpoint. Because the real comic book company is actually Scholastic Books. Yeah, right. The Raina Raina Telgemeier's new book is selling a million copies at first yeah. shipping. You get you get a you get a book that somebody like Scholastic wants to back and. If it's successful, they have this giant distribution system that that will push that book through, and um, you know, it's for me, it's the gold standard of comic books these days. It's not Marvel and DC. It's either it's either the the people who are doing it on their own or through Scholastic Books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, if your kid's coming home with a book catalog and it's got the new Telgemeier book listed or another graphic novel, you know, it's selling. Tens of thousands of copies to committed readers. Oh yes, you can move. I had a, uh, I had a book um, that uh, we did through Scholastic Books. Uh, it was a book of magic tricks, and um, the magician uh, who was the consultant. It was his idea. He gave us the uh, he gave us the tricks, and we reworked it in kid friendly language. And Scholastic put it out through their just their book club. It was not for the mass audience. It was just with the book club. And each each book in the series sold 100,000 copies just through the book club. Right. Wow. Nice. It, it's it's a huge uh, underserved market that Scholastic does very well. And they have, um, and that's the thing too, is that, um, you know, Scholastic has that guaranteed distribution service that's right there. My kids get that Scholastic book thing it seems like every month there's something coming up. Yeah, it's every month. Yeah, so I, yeah. I have three kids who went through that. And yeah, of course, you're always going to order a few dollars worth of books for your kids. I mean, it's, it's a small price to pay as a parent, so you're always looking for the na- the, the things that they'll enjoy reading. Yes. And yeah. that, that's my... Uh, my kid had... Uh, my youngest had a signed reading uh, last year in his class, and it was one of Raina's books. And so everybody, everybody in class, there's 30 kids who are required to read Randa Telgemeier's um, drama. Yeah. So that you're you're not going to get that with the the latest weird Batman in shining metal armor graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you got to be a member of the cult of comic lovers to really be willing to devote your time to it. Yeah, or you've got to you know you got to marry well. <laughs> True that, or you got to be lucky, like the image guys were back in the day, because I don't think we'll ever see that again. No, that, but that's the, that's a great thing about the image guys is they weren't they weren't just lucky; they were really. I, I mean, you can argue this all day long, but I maintain that they were very smart. They knew they knew exactly what they wanted. They knew they had an audience. They knew when the right time was to make a break. I mean, if they'd stayed too long at Marvel. 
then when the industry collapsed, they would just be like everybody else. So they, they broke it just the right time, and all the pieces of what they wanted to do fell into place. And they some of them made mistakes along the way because really, you know, who, who hasn't? I think we've learned nothing from this interview except that we all make mistakes. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, they had they had great timing, and they had a real good sense of their own value. Once again, I'd like to thank Tom Mason for joining me on Classic Comics Cavalcade. I think it was a good listen. It's definitely our longest episode so far, but I think it was a really enjoyable time. So um, thanks for tuning in and join me next week. Uh, a few topics I'm kicking around, the American Comics Distribution System, circa 1978 to 1994 or so. Fascinating story about behind-the-scenes uh, story of comics. Also have an episode coming up on the Doom Patrol, um, the history of them from uh, the most misfit heroes in America to the uh, most popular show on DC Universe so far. Um, and then I have a few other episodes, one on Gene Day, and we're looking at doing a, a panel podcast as well. So I uh, hope you will continue to listen, recommend me to your friends, give me a, a, a good rating in iTunes, and um, please keep listening. Thanks again. Oh, thank you.